This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Kieran McHugh, all Mac to his mates. Mac's the manager of Peer Peer, a corporate-owned station 70 k's northwest of Canamble. They focus on merino sheep, dryland crops, and also run trade and adjustment cattle when the season allows. In this episode, we'll hear Mac's unlikely story of how he ended up at Peer Peer, how he built a cost-effective feedlot to early wean 7,000 lambs, and why he took the unconventional approach to wean his lambs prior to landmarking. Local Land Services District Vet, Jill Kelly, had this yarn with Mac over a cuppa. So I'm here today at Peer Peer, which is a property about 70 kilometres from Canamble on the Corinda Road, with station manager Kieran McHugh, otherwise known as Mac. Thanks for having me today, Kieran. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for coming. Yeah, no worries. So tell me a bit about Peer Peer. A bloody good place to be, actually, at Canamble. It is at the moment. It's rained. It is. We're very lucky here. 34 mils last couple of days. Been nice to see the rainfall. Peer is about 90,000 acres, give or take a few, and runs from east to west, long, narrow place, and having 5,000 hectares of farming and the rest all grazing country. Yeah, it's a really special place, especially when it rains, because it sort of runs right back into some marsh country, but then you've also got like your dry land cropping area and you run a lot of sheep and a few adjustment cattle, is that right? Yeah, at the moment we do. Yeah, so the marshes is a big part of our place. It's not a big area, but it's it's going to be a big big wetlands area that we, we use from time to time as a dumping ground for cattle. Yeah, at the moment we've just got sheep and adjustment cattle on and they're sort of all running on natural country at the moment. And and our, our cereal crops that we're growing are just screaming out of the ground with, with the rain that's been given to us. Yeah, you can practically hear them growing, can't you, when you walk into the paddock? They're loving the rain. Yeah, you can, yeah. So you live here with your family. Tell me about them. Yeah, we've got three kids, Jock, Walker and Primrose. Um, Jock has just started preschool this year and Walkies will go next year and then Prim's, uh, she's a little bit away. It's a really good place to bring up kids. Yeah, it's great fun. It is great fun. There's area for them to play. The house yard is basically the whole property for their backyard. So it's great fun for them to play in. And how long have you been here for now? Going on three years. It's a great place to be here for three years. We've seen it at its worst and we're actually seeing it at its best. So it's, it's a massive transformation since our time turning up here when it was completely dead, dirt, barren place that just showed no life to now that it's got life everywhere. Birds are back, grass is growing. It's completely 180. Yeah, it makes the last few years seem all worthwhile. I just want to take you back though, because this is not your first rodeo in the Canamble area. This is not your first time at Peer Peer. So you've had a bit of a long circuitous route to get back to here. What did you do when you first left school? I left school and went to college and had 12 months at a college in, at Tokel, Newcastle, down at Maitland there, and then got employed from there directly to another partial company out at Warren, Oxley Station and spent my time there for two years, which was great fun, under a manager there called Phil Woodhill. Done two years there and worked my way up through the, the partial 
areas. So I went to, to Kunamala, then then to Burke, which was good fun until that partial company um, got sold up. It was good fun doing the whole whole couple of years getting around the countryside, seeing different people, meeting different people. and Yeah, back in the day where there was lots of jackaroos and lots of fun times. Yeah, jacks and jills and race meetings and radios were always good fun. You get to meet a lot of people. I think I met you, Jill, back many years ago. Long back time then. ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And then you had a bit of a break away from working on places and you went and did a trade. Yeah, that's right. When this property at Burke Beamery um, was sold up, I was probably a bit of a loose end got a bit lost, didn't know where I was going to go and what I was going to do. I still enjoyed farming, but I think I might have been just a bit burnt out from the whole station life, whole farming life and, and probably growing up what I originally set out to be. So I went back to Tamworth for a while and, and did a bit of contract mustering here and there, but it just never felt quite right at the time. So I got I was lucky enough that a very good family friend of ours was a builder and he had a few contracts left to do and he employed me to come on under one condition that I was going to be a qualified carpenter or builder when I left. Yeah, so that's a really handy skill to have, especially around the house, I'd imagine, and around the station. Yeah, it is good. It was strange going back to to college or back to TAFE, I suppose. I'd been out in the workforce and done a fair bit and seen a fair bit and now I was back at the start with all these young fellas who had just left school, so it was good fun kicking around with them and seeing all the fun stuff they got up to and hearing about their stories week to week, but also knowing that I'm here to do a job and get my trade and so I can go out and into the workforce again, whereas their fellows have got their life and fun times ahead of them, whereas I've sort of still got it all ahead of me, but I've done a few of the things that they've already done. Yeah, a bit of maturity, I guess. But ultimately, you didn't stay in the building game. You headed back to agriculture. Oh, well, what it turned out to be was that I was in town with working and Lanny, my, my girlfriend at the time, now, wife, she came down to me and put an ultimatum to me. Said that uh, we're going to make this serious. Are you in or you're out? And I said, I'm in. I'm in. We're going to make this serious. And then so I moved up to St George with her. And in that time frame, I was subbing to other builders as well as contract mustering on the side. And then as it turned out, that I always took the contracting jobs over the building jobs. So there was a bit of a the love was still there for ag and wanting to go, you know, mustic stock and and ride motorbikes and get out and just be a part in the bush, which I love being. I always took farming jobs over, well, you know, over over the building jobs, but I made sure my building jobs were always either building sheds or doing rural houses so I could always see what was going on the farm at the same time. Went up to St George for a bit of time up there, poking around, and, and then we were lucky enough to score a job back at Warren. So we came back to Warren as a station manager there with a sheep stud. And done a bit of time there with them and learned a lot about sheep and managing blokes again as well as basically getting a foothold back in ag again. Tell me about the adjustment from being, say, an associate manager into to actually running the show, being the manager. Well, it's actually huge. It's a massive step up. You don't get an insight into actually how to run in these places until you, you're thrown in the deep end. And, and it's, it's easy stepping up every morning and giving a list of jobs, but going from the list of jobs to then running the place and seeing planning, forward planning through to the end of the year and, and trying to achieve that as well as financials and KPIs that you need to tick off. More so satisfying for you as well as these targets that you want to try and achieve for the business and for the company that they're trying to achieve as well is very satisfying. And so I guess with your background, working on places and things like that, you probably had the out in the paddock 
side of things sorted, you know, you knew how to move stock and, you know, do all the husbandry procedures and feed stock and all that sort of stuff. But how did you go with the business side of things and the office? Yeah, the day-to-day running is is easy, just comes naturally now and as I'd rather be out there. That's what I fell in love with ag with is to be outside. As you get up in the ranks, can't go outside. You have to, someone has to do the dirty work and the paperwork sort of thing. A big challenge for me in the office sort of stuff, handling invoices and looking at numbers and making sure all the numbers align and, and it works out really well. And so I guess you've probably surrounded yourself with good people within the company and external to the company that can help you with those sorts of things that don't come naturally in, in managing a station. Yeah, I'm very lucky here with the staff that I have around me and the people who are my support team that work here with me very closely. So with my business analyst who who works with us on farm here as well, keeping track of financials as well as other parts of the business that we can't be across all the time. And my wife, she helps me very much as well as people in town, including vets, to give us a hand on farm, off farm with the ideas and solutions to help the business run more smoothly. So tell me what you've experienced here over the past three years since you've come on board. Describe to me what your day-to-days have been like and what the running of the place has entailed. Yeah, well, day-to-day, turning up here three years ago was a barren place, very dry. Barren's probably the wrong word. It's just a very dry place. It didn't sort of show much. But there was massive potential. I've always turned up here at PP and and understood the massive potential this place is going to have. For some reason, there's always been a vision this place is going to produce something really special and a lot of it. It just needed to be shaken up and, and really given the best chance it can. So what we set out to do is we originally, the farming area is a lot smaller, so we increased the capacity of the farming and looked at the sheep that was on here at the moment and really started putting pressure on those and tried to increase their profitability or just the general lambing percentages, their, their fleece weights, as well as making the sheep perform individually, not as a whole group, but making sure that every sheep that stays on the place here actually earns their spot to be here. So they were the two big things that we, we looked at. And then with being in the drought, we thought, how are we going to make this place profitable with the drought? And, and it basically came down to that we had to be much more efficient in feeding, the way we are feeding, how much we are feeding. And so that came back to quantifying our numbers, quantifying how much grain we are buying in, making sure each individual sheep was in the right position to be fed and had every opportunity to, to produce a lamb. And that's no mean feat on a place of this size. How many ewes are we talking about? We were close to six, 7,000 there at one stage feeding, but where that location ran, we were sort of trailing out, running a feed cart out to 10Ks one way and 10Ks the other way. So that's it's two blokes, sometimes three or four, depending on what was going on, with feed carts going seven days a week, feeding sheep. That becomes tiresome after a while, as well as putting hay, salt and lime, making sure all the animal's health was basically up to standard where it needed to be to perform. And so to take you back to September 2018, I think was... I think when the drought really started to bite, I remember some pretty sad days out here. Tell me about how weaning was done back then. Yeah, that was a pretty tough, tough couple of weeks there coming into weaning. We weren't sure all the hard work that we put in, how it was going to go. We had some pretty sad feed dumps. But we started off and started to wean. We had a rough idea what we were going to see, but we didn't actually have correct numbers at this time. And you were weaning pretty young, weren't you? Like those lambs were little. Yeah, they were. 
Yeah, though we went in weight sort of 15 kilos was our average for our ewes and 19 kilos was for our weathers, but we had lambs that were down to less than 12 kilos, sort of 8 kilos that we're pulling off mum. Yeah, that takes some real management. Were you weaning them into confinement? We made some confinement yards. Yeah, we did. We made some yards around our sheep yards that were rough and ready. They were pretty wild, to be honest. Like there was steel posts, a bit of chicken wire, some shade cloth with some of the fancier pens, whereas others were basically just trail grain on the ground and hope that they survive and pick it up without too much other crap mixed in with it as well. But that's often what people find themselves doing in a drought, isn't it? Like making do and doing the best you can and that's certainly what you guys are up to. Yeah, you do. And I think there's a bit of you know stigma about some partial companies that they've got all this money and they can just make do. Well, that wasn't the situation. We, we went into it the same as everyone else, not really knowing when it was going to end this drought and didn't want to spend a lot of money on it. But we also wanted to make sure our sheep were right too. So... There's a fine line there of going, let's go in and, and make sure the sheep are right, but also we don't want to invest a huge amount of money in something that wasn't potentially going to be here for a long time, if, so we thought. And so you pulled your lambs off. They were quite young. You were doing the best you can in the setup. You roughly pulled together. How did it go? Pretty wild. Actually, we had sheep scattered all over the place. And then we thought, oh, well, we can go do this better. So we put them into laneways, made some more confinement pens in laneways. So we had ewes going everywhere, lambs going everywhere. Had little lambs going everywhere, little lambs that were sick, a lot of good sheep that were were going well, so we thought, but really when we look back at it now, they weren't doing as well as what we hoped they were doing. And so what changes have you implemented since then? How does how does your setup look today and how are you approaching weaning this year? I know it's rained, but tell me about what's happening out here now. Yeah, we had a massive mind shift. Went and saw a lot of producers who were sheep farmers, the same as us, in the district as well as out of the district and saw what they did. What I saw was the same situation that I saw, but what we took out of it was that we know we can do this better. So what we planned on doing was setting out and trying to put in a plan in place and setting up our ewes and our lambs to be better. So what we set about was building a feedlot, which is nothing flash. Like you've seen at Jill, it's nothing flash. You could have probably gone in and spent a few hundred thousand dollars and built an automated setup. Why did you build the functional setup? Can you describe it to me and tell me why you chose to build it the way you did? Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's all it is, just a laneway with four pens either side. So we eight pens in total. Our pen size is 100 by 100, a trough in the middle. We've got self-feeders set up along the fence and a few trees. And that's basically what it, what it is. Like, it's very simple. We looked at a lot of areas around our farm to... For location but for us it just made it simple right next to the wool shed everything's there our silos our our grain handling facilities which is basically set up of a chaser bin and a couple of silos and augers was right there so that made location sort of the most obvious for us water ran right through the middle of this paddock where we decided to put it so we had no worries about trying to change water or pump water to it so that was easy just tea into it and why we had water it was just a really simple design that seems to work really well. We use self-feeders to fill up our for our grain, which cuts down on, on labour. We have plastic troughs that we run around the fence that we use for induction, just bunks induction. Ten days on that, then they switch them over to self-feeders and they're away they go. I don't know why it works as simply as it does, but it's it just works. And you can do it with um, minimal labour? Yeah, we can do the whole lot. You can basically do the whole whole thing by yourself if you really wanted to. It's very simple. Mixing grain takes a little bit of time, but that's all part and parcel of it. There's no real scales. We just use 
time is is what we use to make our rations as closely as possible. We don't have any scales. We buy feed in in bulk bags to work out to help out with our ration. We know how much grain goes through our augers on time, just on on manufacturer specifications. They tell you how much grain's pumped through an auger at a certain time, so we use that to help us out. Um, we only ever make enough grain to to make the mix to work on our favour so not trying to make uneven numbers or whatever it's going to do to make a mix we just fill it up and then what we have left over put in a separate silo so it's ready to go for next time and so your mix might be like a barley lupin mix is that what you're talking about yeah barley lupin and a a buffer pellet sort of thing yeah and do you crack your grain at all no we don't no we never seem to even worry about cracking grain it was just put out and the ewes they did sort it but we just play around with the grain the more confident we got as the older lambs got we we played around with the grain and and put fibre in. Sometimes we took fibre out. We always got roused on by our local district vet to put the fibre back in. It's a long way to come out here to chop up dead sheep. <laughs> yeah, we got very good at killing sheep, unfortunately, but that was all part of the learning curve. And so while we're on the topic, might as well ask you, what um, animal health problems do you see out here running a setup like an intensive feeding in an early weaning situation? Yeah, we had everything. We had pink eye, we had coccidiosis, we had acidosis, we had pregtox out here with our ewes prior to lambing on grain, you name it. But things have improved since then. They have, yes. We've gotten very good at identifying animal health and know how to fix it earlier on as opposed to being in trouble with it. Yeah, well, even prevent it, I reckon. That's better. Yeah, see what's coming, see what potential hazards there are and and offset it. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right, yeah. Yeah. Specifically now, so you've got your setup. It's quite simple, but it's really functional. I want to talk to you about how you came to the decision to wean prior to landmarking and why that was a success and, and how that's continued on. Normal practice tells you you've got to landmark and then put them back with mum and then wean them. We tried it, like everyone else. We were getting huge mortality losses from it, from landmarking to weaning. And why do you think that was? I think it's a combination of mismothering. Also think going through the drought and marking lambs and then putting them back and they have to one try and find mum two try and find the feed at the same time the feed dumps are a very busy place ewes get mixed up and as well as the combination them trying to get over marking as well i think there was a huge complications with uh, mismothering probably is the biggest thing i'd say and what sort of marking technique were you using we're just using rings on lambs we don't mules here at the moment, we have um, have issues with that, so we're trying to work out that. But we just basically ring ring tails and, and nuts and, and earmark, and that was really very, very simple. Like we tried to make it as simple as possible, very streamlined. We went to a lot of extent to try and make sure mismothering wasn't an issue, but with the, the drought being the way it was, I don't think we could have avoided it. A plus, having the losses on the feed dumps that we were having, which wasn't huge, but it's it wasn't ideal when you when you saw what you saw. You came to the conclusion that you were going to wean first, mark second. So talk me through how that works. Yeah, so we saw that as a um, a bit of a mind shift to change from weaning first and then marking second. One, it gave us time. We weren't pushed to a deadline to try and get these limbs marked before we had to wean them. The other thing too was it also gave us the option that the ewes and the lambs were also used to us being around with feed carts and things like that. So... When it came time to actually wean them, they weren't frightened of us from hurting them, as we seem to think, of them getting them in, pulling them off their mums, marking them and then putting them back. Probably a very stressful time for the lambs. 
with them having weaned first and then dealing with this later, I think they're older and more mature and, and getting used to being handled in a different way. I don't think they're as, as scared or they just seem to be a lot more contented when we did it. So there's a huge, huge difference in, in mortality for us. Yeah, so you've really looked after animal welfare there and dropped your mortality as a result. Yeah, like I think our mortality was over 10% sort of thing from landmarking to weaning, whereas when we did it last year for the first time, we were below 1%, so it's a massive change. Yeah, and so this year it has rained. It started to rain here in late February, March, and so there is a lot of feed at the moment, but you're still going to wean and then mark this year? Yeah, we're still going to do it this year. Like we had a bit of pressure. Not pressure, I suppose. We had a lot of people questioning whether we'd still do it this year and we've decided to do it the same way. It just works so well. Like it's quite an eerie feeling when you wean your lambs off and they are so contented. There's, there's no noise. When it comes to landmarking time, the only noise is the radio from the landmarkers and lambs are sitting down in a, in a catching pen waiting to get marked. It's quite eerie. Yeah, fantastic. So you're going to wean them out onto crop this year? Yeah, we will. Yeah, going to look at putting them onto some oats, which is going to be lovely, as opposed to put them into the the feedlot. We probably still will trail feed, just for as part of our management plan of inducting them and educating them into a trail feed grain ration. So just a bit of imprinting for future in case it gets dry again. Yes, it will. Yeah, that's the way. Always, um, don't they say, you know, prepare for the next drought the minute it starts to rain? Yeah, like we've got the feedlot set up ready to go so it can turn as as a moment's notice. That's going to be a little while away with the amount of feed we have here, but it's ready to go whenever we need. And you've also made use of your laneways too to lock ewes up to get them off the country to maintain ground cover and soil integrity as well. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was a massive call that we decided to do. We saw our country blowing away, not from the fact of, of well, with the wind as well, but also our sheep just walking the country in and, and wrecking it. So we, we decided to put up laneway. Well, we've got a big laneway here already, but we decided to put up block gates either side of waters and lock the sheep in laneways. And they were in there for 12 months. We joined in there. We didn't lamb in there. The ewes got used to being laneways, living in laneways. We trail fed in laneways. We put hay in laneways. Everything happened in the laneway, but it um, it cut down our driving for us to for the paddocks. One after another was basically mob of sheep. I remember before you did that, one of your um, the guys who works here told me when he was putting out cotton seed in paddocks, it was taking him ten hours and one hundred and eighty kilometres to do one cotton seed lap around the entire property. So cutting down those Ks and time in the vehicle putting out feed would be a huge benefit to your staff. Yeah, massive, massive. The blokes enjoyed having their weekends back as opposed to driving around all weekend, trail feeding grain out. So yeah, it was a huge difference when you could just drive down a, a straight line, feed close to six, 7,000 ewes and be done with it in a couple of hours. It was bloody very enjoyable. And so have you seen the benefit, do you think, in your country bounce back because you did that? Yeah, I do. Like our country has responded completely differently it's hard to know how your country is going to respond after a drought anyway because there's nothing there but to see the way it's responded with having stock off it and seeing how the country's responded i think having some ground cover if any to hold the rain up has helped it respond a lot quicker we weren't very fast at letting our sheep out after the first rain event or the second rain event we left them in in confinement for a lot longer till the country and the grass hardened up, we were just concerned that the feed is just going to be too good for the sheep too quickly. So we took a position just to hold up for probably three weeks before we let them out. And it all went well? Yeah, really well. Yeah, no, we were really excited how to let them out that day. 
And um, were they excited? I hope they were. Did they I, kick their little heels off? No, I don't know about that, but we were pretty excited to go walking through lush green paddocks again and, and mustering and, and the dogs actually, I think, we enjoyed it the most, you know, get out and do what a dog does. So it was very enjoyable that day. That's an incredible learning story, what's happened here over the last three years. You can see it in the sheep and you can see it in the country and um, it's a real credit to you. If you had one piece of advice you wish you would have had earlier, what do you think that would be? Good question, Jill. I suppose, you know, the obvious answer is the drought's always going to break. It's just a matter of, you know, sticking to your guns. And A no. wise vet did tell you that in the middle of it. <laughs> you didn't believe me, but... No, that's right. She couldn't put a date on it, though. <laughs> one obvious piece of advice is that, yeah, the drought is definitely going to break. That's, that's the known thing that is going to happen. The other part is just being prepared to have a go, have a crack. You know, you're going to learn a lot of things in a drought, you're going to learn more about yourself and about your team and about your country and your stock in a drought than you what you will in a good year. Be prepared to know the hard times are going to be there, but the good times are going to come out the end. Yeah, so you're at the point now where you're absolutely going to hit it out of the park, aren't you? We're hoping to. We're trying pretty hard to, to go pretty full steam ahead. It, it's an eerie feeling having so many stock around us and trying to buy a heap of stock at the same time, having a lot of crop. It's great fun. This is what we work you know, bust your gut for three years to, to have this at the other end. It's great fun now. Righto. Tell me some really good stories, Mac. Well, when we left Warren and heading up two hours up the road to Canamble, we thought this is a massive big journey that we're going to set on as a little family. We only had one child at the time, Jocko. Anyway, we arrived at Peerpe and the inside of the house yard looked exactly the same as the outside. Carpet moss had eaten all the carpet in the house. Curtains were falling down. Doors were falling off the kitchen inside the house as well. So we set about repairing the whole house. I'm amazed you didn't just turn around and drive back to Warren. No, no. Well, we brought the trusty tool trailer. So we opened up the doors straight away and we fixed up the carpets, fixed up the doors in the kitchen. The oven had a jockey strap holding the door shut on it at the time. <laughs> Oh dear. So yeah, we invested in a new oven, new hot plates, fixed a few doors, pulled the carpet up. And you got a bit of lawn? Yeah, lawn's slowly surviving. We uh, we tried to kill it a fair bit with, with the water we got here. The bore water's pretty salty, so we tried to kill it numerous times. It's slowly coming back. Doesn't look as good inside the house yard as it does outside the house yard at the moment, but we're looking further afield to hoping to have green lush pastures inside the house yard. Yeah, that's the go. Bit of a watering system. Watering system's there. It was pretty wild at the time where the watering system leaked. So the house was starting to sink into the yard. So yeah, January, hottest month of the year with a shovel and a pick and uh, digging up the watering system, repairing that. So I'm not sure who's sillier, me or the, the watering system. Good yarn. When the hay drivers used to turn up, it was always very exciting to uh, hear their tales from their travels. So this is bought in hay that you're buying in in the drought? Yeah, it was. One or two trucks would turn up and then we'd set about at daylight. So we'd set about feeding the hay out. So they'd come in one at the end of the place and a hay run should, in theory, only take a couple of hours. Often used to take half a day, three quarters of a day because the truck drivers were so good at telling yarns and pulling the boys up on stories that were going on or they'd hop in and help you unload the tractor, say, in the middle of summer other than undoing straps, I'd be sitting in the cab beside you in the tractor because it's the coolest place to be. Telling your stories at a gateway, waiting for the next mob of sheep, bellowing at you to come in to hurry up and feed them. 
and uh, they tell you stories about where they've been, what hay they've seen, hay prices they've seen. So they're basically our rolling marketplace for us. And did those stories make you think, geez, I'm pleased to be here and running this show? Or did they make you think, oh my God, the whole world's, you know, it's never going to rain again? Bit of both. It was quite funny. Sometimes they'd tell you that, you know, you hear reports that the hay's running out. There's no hay anywhere. Like we're going to run out of hay and what's the next thing? We're going to be feeding cardboard to sheep. And then the week later, they'd turn back up and say, no, I found another pile of hay. It's right. Everything's under control. You might have to pay a bit extra for it, but here might it is. Might have to pay a bit extra, yep. But don't expect it to turn up anytime soon because there's an old busted tractor that's going to take two years to fix and or there's an auger that's broken. You know, just the, the people that used to turn up to deliver hay and grain for you was never the same person. So, you know, you get a phone call and say, look, I'm on my way with some barley. Can you send me a pin drop? Where to come to? You send them a pin drop and then all of a sudden there's this introduction to meet this new truck driver, induct him into the place and learn where he's come from, what he's seen. And then he'd ask you about what's going on here. And then two days later, another truck driver turn up and you go through the whole scenario over again. So it was quite enjoyable to see a truck driver that had been here once before. He knew where he's going, was waiting to, to come and tell you what he saw already. Yeah, you didn't have to start the whole conversation from the very beginning. No, it was a, it was a conversation used to start new every two days. It was, uh, what are you doing here? Geez, it won't rain. When's it going to rain? Oh, yep. Everybody loves talking about the weather, even yeah. in a drought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how many sheep you're feeding? How many sheep, you know, what's going on here? What's your ration? How long is this grain going to last you? So all those sorts of things. And so over the course of the drought, do you happen to know how many either tons or truckloads of grain and hay you fed? I'd have to sit down and work that out, Jill. It just kept rolling and rolling, rolling through. Thousands uh, of tons. Thousands though. of tons. Thousands of tons. Wow. You'll be ready to go again. Yes, we've still got grain in the silos from the drought that when it ended, we still had grain left in the system here. So it's still sitting here waiting to go, which seems a bit funny because we've got a heap of barley out in the paddocks at the moment growing. We'll have new crop and old crop. I think most people will be squirrelling a bit away. The drought's still pretty fresh in everybody's mind. Yeah, it's it's funny. The drought really only ended in February. So and we're now in July. It's not that long ago that the drought was here. Yeah, well, I wish you all the best and I can't wait to sit on the sidelines and watch it all unfold out here. I don't think you're in the sidelines, Jill. I think you're in the trenches with us, most of it. <laughs> yep, sometimes it feels like that. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for the chat, Kieran. Too easy. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.